Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. In this episode, Ied and I ask, why is human rights advocacy failing so often, and what needs to change about the way we approach it? This is a high-altitude discussion on the state of activism and how it's changing at the same time as changes in the global power balance and the shift in attitudes of different governments regarding human rights protection. I want to contextualize it. We sound very harsh on activism, and I don't want this to be taken as criticism of any specific activist, organization, or campaign. We're talking about long-term trends and dynamics, to which there are always exceptions. Many of these ideas are works in progress, as we mentioned, and we're far from having completely thought out the issue. We welcome any feedback if anyone else is grappling with the same questions. If you're watching this on YouTube, please note that there's no video for this episode. Video will be back next episode. The huge elephant of the room is that the world order is changing, and the rules-based machinery that can, or claimed, to protect human rights is gone. All of our human rights activism is happening in a world where the fundamentals of human rights activism are changing. And instead of querying these fundamentals and coming up with new ones, we're just doing the same thing that doesn't work and wondering why it's not working. Recently, I have been feeling a sense of pointlessness. Uh, a pervasive kind of sense of point, pointlessness, which I am familiar with because sometimes it happens when I'm burnt out. Uh, it's also like, you know, it's also like, it was also December, January in, in Norway. It's a very dark period of the of the year. And I was thinking, I thought at the time that, you know, maybe part of this is seasonal depression. And I think it was, like part of it was seasonal depression. But this sense of pointlessness, as it lifted, as you know, as the seasonal depression kind of lifted and things became, you know, the, 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 we're past the, the, the darkest part of the year. Um, and I don't really feel depressed anymore. But at the same time, that sense of point, pointlessness still continued to be. And the other day, I, you know, I was, I was kind of journaling, doing some integration, and I realized that that point of, sense of pointlessness is not psychological. It's not about me. It's about that whenever I think about anything in in our field, whether it is, I mean, let's say I'm I'm browsing my Twitter my my Twitter timeline, for example, and I see, for example, this person doing something about I don't know, uh, uh, you know, signing a petition for this or giving a prize to this person, or uh, you know, uh, trying to do uh, you know uh, advocacy on this issue. I felt that nothing of this excites me, but for a very specific reason, I feel like this is, uh, like I said, again, kind of like rearranging the vectors on the Titanic. It does not go down. It does, first of all, it's not being done at the scale, at a scale, uh, you know, it's not zoomed out enough to actually capture the size of the problem. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it does nothing to, 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 uh, to tackle the systemic issues that are really plaguing our field entirely. Uh, so I realized that this is, it's not just me. It's not just that I'm depressed and I'm, I feel like it's actually, it's very strategic. I actually feel like a lot of this work needs to change. And you know, like we have been discussing this for a very, very long time. In fact, I realized that, uh, uh, let, me, let me check the date of the, the, the tag on, uh, uh, in, in my Rome database. Yeah, so essentially, I started using this, uh, talking about paradigms of activism on in, uh, in in Rome in May of 2020. 
uh, and I remember that in fact some of our first um, concept notes for Kawakibi for Kawakibi Foundation when we were uh, seeking funding in uh, 2020 also were all about you know how this is a different 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 kind of like we're basically want want to chat to a different model of activism yeah the idea was so much we'd... less well baked but it's always been there in some form of the other and um a couple of weeks ago you sent me this article which kind of gets to a, one part of it really well um it's about this thing that the author calls folk politics hmm. and he basically says um this idea is that so all politics begins in the immediate uh where actors work on social change in their in their immediate environment but folk politics refuses to leave that level behind it refuses to become indirect or to look at the abstract and the conceptual it only wants to work on the immediate um mm. because it's easier to accuse greedy bankers of moral failure than to rationally analyze the details of the capitalist economic system it's easier to do to donate against world hunger than to think about the actual root causes of where world hunger comes from in the first place and it's always in reaction mode so you have this kind of era that we all instinctively feel like we're living in where the world keeps getting worse and we just keep reacting to it like the the right of politics shifts the overton window and we respond and defend I feel that we're coming to a head over here because, yeah, we have been talking about this for for a long time. I think that we like, we started talking about this in 2019, actually. Um, you know, I personally had a very turbulent 2019, not to get into it, but by the time we're into 2020, late 2019, early 2020, we started thinking, okay, what does this mean? How, how does this work get carried out now? But I think that uh, in a certain way, a lot of people were thinking even maybe maybe even us at some level we were thinking that maybe okay trump is going to leave the white house and then things are going to even out a little bit i mean we we knew that you know we're actually entering a new a, a new phase in geopolitics and, and history etc and the way that we do our work has to change we knew this whether it's trump or biden we knew this but i think at some level uh we thought that uh you know, uh, things are going to get a little bit easier. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people were, were playing this waiting game, thinking, you know, okay, maybe Trump is an exception. We knew that this was not true, but a lot of people were. They're thinking Trump maybe is an exceptional uh, period, and then after that, we're going to return to some sort of normalcy. Add to that the fact that the pandemic added a lot of uh, another flavor to this, especially that, I mean, I, this is what I feel right now. I feel like a lot, the actual troubles are going to start after the pandemic. Uh, I think that, you know, 2022 maybe, I think, could be the year in which many things open up and there's 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 a lot of economic growth in some parts of the world which where the pandemic is well managed. Maybe we'll have another variant sometime in the year, but I think that little by little we're going to basically be coming out of this. So I've been but... spending a lot of time on economic research lately and the consensus in economics seems to be that there's a massive wave of economic crises just beyond the horizon because um, you basically have like runaway inflation happening right now because of the amount of money that was printed to get countries through the pandemic and the true impacts of that on prices, asset prices, um, you know, 
basic goods prices hasn't really been felt, not to mention the impact of that on states which were already in a bad economic situation. Like if Western countries are worried about this, then imagine what's going to happen in Egypt where they've been like uh in Saudi Arabia where they've been basically giving surprise tax bills to companies because they need to make the books balance somehow or Egypt where they're basically jailing or arresting businessmen and forcing them to pay a ransom effectively to get back out um and it feels it seems like over the last two years people have forgotten that these countries were close to the precipice already before covid no, but I think there's something else that's going to happen, which is that the, the economic recovery is going to be extremely uneven, not only among countries, but also within countries, uh, and is going to expose a lot of social problems. Uh, a lot of, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the other day I was just, I was just reading this about how, uh, I mean, there was a selection, I think, of a few, of a few billionaires, and uh, there was some research about how many trillions of dollars they got richer during the pandemic. Uh, so inequality is getting worse, and with inequality comes social upheaval. And uh, the thing is, our ideological landscape, but also our geopolitical landscape, and also like everything that we've built, we've built we, like everything that's been built before, has been built under the assumption of certain rules and norms that don't exist anymore. And things are about to get, you know, they're about to get more complex, not less complex. Um, and I think that something, you know, I don't know why I felt this energy. Uh, now, uh, maybe because we had already developed a strategy for uh, Kawakibi and we were about to, you know, we're basically working on uh, our project manager basically just started to put these into on a, on a schedule for the year, uh, you know, for, for this year and the next year to, to, to start, you know, implementing these as projects. Uh, and maybe in the early, you know, in, maybe in, in our early work in 2020, um, even, you know, for parts of 2021, I think a lot like we, our engagements and our coalition work with a lot of other organizations, uh, we kind of, we kind of felt out of place. And I think this is something you felt a lot, you know? Yeah, I mean, the whole activism sector, like we've said so many times, just has this un unfitness for purpose about it um like so many of the things so many people spend so much energy on just feel like there's they're done for emotional catharsis because they're not actually going to achieve what they're you know ostensibly being done for yeah i mean we're getting diminishing re returns on many things uh, so anyway, so I started to think. Uh, I mean, recently, recently I've had I've had like a uh, a meeting, an extended meeting with uh, with someone who's leading one of the most important human rights organizations. He's a leader within that organization. I don't think he's the one on top uh, here in Norway. And uh, we had a, like a free flowing discussion about about this, about how things have to change, and how there are certain fields that you know we're kind of obsessed with these fields because I think we're they're part of the future and there are certain projects that are part of the future um and then i i it struck me that maybe i mean all of these ideas should be put in some kind of format that between the two of us and maybe within our team we should be discussing this more uh i don't know how big this is i mean it's basically just the the, the big question or the big topic is what does activism look like in the new world 
how are, how is the activism paradigm changing with the shifting with with shifting with the shifting geopolitical landscape? Uh, how do we defend human rights past 2020 and into what what seems like a turbulent uh, next decade? Uh, what is valid? What is not valid anymore? And what's going to be valid? What what should I mean? If we want to be valid, if we want to be powerful in 10 years, what should we be investing in today? If we want to be able to defend human rights in you know five years to 10 years, uh, what is the capacity that is required for us today? Uh, what is going to be working? What is going to be to be not working, and so on? Um, I don't know if we talked a lot about the reasons, but I don't want to get into the reasons right now because I think we've already discussed this. Uh, you know what? What are those geopolitical changes? And maybe we'll get into it. I don't know. But uh, the idea here is, I thought maybe between me and you, we should have like this kind of side project. It's not really a side project because it's not side. It's actually quite important. But you know, kind of a small project where I would, you know, write something about this, um, and then uh, you have a week, for example, to comment. Uh, and then after that, I have a week to comment back and so on. And we develop this into maybe we, you know, we, we also bring in a few people uh, also into the conversation. And eventually what we do is that this kind of over the course of, let's say, a month or six weeks or eight weeks or so, that develops some kind of uh, map or some kind of outline saying that this is, this, these are, this is the field. This is the field of inquiry that we're going to be looking at. And I don't know what is going. I don't know how big it. I don't know if this is kind of like an article, or a book. I don't know if it's a podcast or a series of podcasts. I don't know what the size is going to be, uh, but I think it's just very important. I think if we write it, well, I don't know if we're going to write it or record it. I think it's going to be very seminal, not only for us but for the, for other people in the field. Yeah, I don't think the form matters so much as doing the actual inquiry. Um, the ideas are foremost, um, but the really the core of this and what we've been you know, complaining to each other about for a long time is that the field of human rights as a whole for a very long time has over-indexed on appealing to international authorities to care when they've been shown time and time and time again that authorities don't give a shit about human rights. Um, and, you know, there's, I don't know if it's actually true, but it's a popular quote attributed to Einstein that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. And we're just doing the same thing. To, to be fair, the, the, the real problem is that the same things used to work. Uh, they used to, of course, they didn't work for everybody. I'm Palestinian, I can tell you that. Uh, but they used to work for at least some people some of the time. Uh, I'm not sure if they used to work so much as we used to not hear about the ones that didn't work so much because now everybody well, well, has a platform. No, we, we did. We did. And these people, of course, I mean, of course, I'm, uh, you know, uh, anger is part of the Palestinian experience. But what I said is that at least the public narrative about these, at least the public narrative among the people in the West is that human rights work uh, actually gets results. Uh, and there was, certain, there was a certain toolkit that was developed. There were certain rules on how to use this toolkit. And if you want to work in the organizations, there's a certain skill set that, that, that you have to get. Uh, and this was, I mean, and again, I mean, after social media and stuff, the, the toolkit changed a little bit, but it most, more or less was a new twist on old on techniques anyway. I think what we're facing right now is completely different from anything else. And a lot of things that used to work don't work anymore. Uh, and of course, I mean, I've expressed this, even expressed it in the book, you know, basically how the liberal world order never cared about us at all. 
even in the first place and we're, su we're suffering before it it was built upon our own you know our dispossession uh and then it's you know now that it's crashing we're the we're the first to suffer as well uh but you know besides that I'm, i mean i don't want to talk about the geopolitical context for it but you know looking at what i want to do really is look at specifically our own work kawakibi's work um and kind of talk about why we pick these things what are the what's the implication for others in our field etc um so i i started a, I, I you know in december i started this uh, this tag in rome uh, which is separate from the previous the previous tag uh, which which i started in in may of 2020 it was more about uh, it was more about critiquing the old paradigm than building the new one uh it it was more about saying okay this is what doesn't work that rather than saying these are the tools uh, that will work so now this is different because now basically this is uh we're i'm kind of uh, coalescing a lot of stuff that we've been talking about for a long time but into something that looks more as not only a strategy for us but something that can be shared publicly saying that this is our view about why certain things that we're doing right now and we're part of the toolkit for a long time we should abandon them because they don't work. And, and these are new tools that we have to actually get very, uh, very skilled in using because they will work. So what have you got on that list? So I'm, I'm going through the, you know, I'm, I'm going through this uh, uh, chronologically, starting from the first entry. Um, uh, and I thought that, uh, you know, we, we should, uh, we, we, we should mention four four things four things that are already part of our strategy and already part of kf's uh, uh long-term uh you know uh, uh you know uh capacity building and investment one is blockchain uh, the second is monetization monetization uh, as, as a stream of income uh monetization i think monetization slash social media because we go together and then there's targeted campaigns nar and narrative management uh which is you know i kind of described as uh cambridge analytica for good but also the narrative management thinking that goes there the strategic narrative management th thinking that goes behind it uh, and really explaining the the relationship between narrative management uh and power because in the end it's about power it's basically the the the, the big the big topic here is that this is the, the this is a paradigm of activism that is based upon power building rather than appealing to a par powerful institutions to act on your behalf because they don't give a shit and they won't. And even if they wanted to, they can't. Uh, I realized also that I've kind of become. So was there a fourth one? Uh, no, I think the, the it's just, I, I, I put monetization on social media as two different things, but monetization slash it's actually monetization slash social media. But I think there's more uh, because these are incomplete notes. Um, what I started doing is that I started creating a section within my own um, uh, template, my daily template in Rome. And what I did is that I'm like, during your regular day, in your regular browsing of social media, uh, why don't you take this, this sense of uh, pointlessness, let's say, or this sense of frustration and just comment? You know, when you see something and it's like, okay, this is, this is frustrating. Why don't you just take it, paste it, and comment on it like why is this frustrating within this context why do you think this doesn't work and uh, what is the alternative uh, 
I, I'm yet to actually go through it and read it all together. I think maybe uh, at some point, I actually scheduled time next week uh, to do this, you know, to kind of, uh, um, uh, what do you say? Like I, I scheduled a, a, an hour next Tuesday ahead of our call because on Tuesday we're actually, we actually have a, a standing call where I thought, okay, maybe I can actually spend an hour, put this together, write a blog, send it to Ahmed so that ahead of our call, we like when we have our call, maybe we discuss it a little bit. So you mentioned four areas, but I want to zoom out to like the ideas behind them or the principle that leads to the area. Um, one of them to me is just dispensing with incremental gains. Um, the idea of incrementalism in human rights doesn't seem to be working. Um, I don't know, maybe someone will argue strongly against this and say, and say it's done a lot of good and it's better than nothing. But I think that incrementalism is a way that you're taught basically to be less intolerant of the status quo. And we do want to be intolerant of the status quo because it's intolerable and we want radical change, not incrementalism. So we're not looking at things that can make the human rights situation in, in the world 0.1% better over the next 10 years. We're looking for things um, that make a totally revolutionary change. That's where the whole Bitcoin thing comes from, because it's a, it's a radical disruption of the economic system. Uh, a conceptual way of looking at what you just described is, uh, uh, what do you say? Uh, who's the guy? Yeah, uh, what's his name? The guy who wrote, uh, who, who talked about uh, the structure of scientific revolutions. He wrote a book about Kuhn. it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's, he's, he was writing about scientific theories and how, how scientific one scientific paradigm displaces the, 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 the next. Um, but then we can apply this to this as well. We can apply it to any paradigm shift, that paradigms break and then shift, etc. I think we, I actually did uh, um, a thread about this a few years ago, which I was very proud of, and then we didn't really do much with it. But I think maybe I should take a note here that uh, you know explaining paradigm shifts as part of this. Yeah, so one principle there is uh, radical, not incremental. Another is, I'd say, a very radical focus on independence of our work. Um, because when you talk, whether you talk, like the social media stuff is just a means towards monetization. And the monetization is just a means towards nobody being able to tell us what to work on and what not to work on. Hmm. Um, so well, keep in mind that independent, independence here is a step towards interdependence because, again, again you are you want to be independent of bigger agendas because you want to be independent you want to have your independent income but at the same time you want to work in coalitions and you want to work with a lot of people who are because this is bigger than one organization okay so maybe what i mean instead of independence is self-reliance and hmm. another piece of it is sustainability it would be strategic independence but i'm not talking strategic independence for the organization for a single organization but strategic independence for the movement yeah, and sustainability is connected to that. In other words, we will still be dependent on our, you know, brothers and sisters in the community, but collectively we should not be. We should like we we should be calling our own shots. Yeah, and then the third principle that immediately occurs to me is embracing new tools because they have potential to be revolutionary, and that means embracing technology basically, um, which is. Um, some of the most impactful activism that I've seen in the last five years has been people who've embraced tools. Um, like the thing that's most impressed me about Amnesty, even though we think of them as a very old school um, 
old paradigm of activism organization is actually that they have this tech lab um, and they quickly adopted the capacities or they built the capacities in order to be able to check phones for Pegasus. And that's had a really massive impact in protecting activists as well as exposing the people going after them. Mm. Yeah, this has become a must, of course. And uh, it, it is interesting because we need to, it's, it's not enough for us to simply, uh, because exposing is not enough. Uh, this is the thing we have to take it a step further so on the list of uh, of tools i would also add uh, tech we have to actually develop our own tech uh, which is you know as you know like we have been talking about this a lot as that uh, that kawakibi is looking for tech like basically to get into tech investments as well to basically develop our own tech in certain areas um but getting back i mean i, I think I'm, uh, it's going to be a little bit of an unstructured over uh, unstructured because i'm going over notes and the notes are not really uh, thematically uh, organized but i realized that i kind of get annoyed when people smart people take up positions in international institutions in like especially american institutions um i feel like it's a cop out i feel like can't you see you're smart enough to see that these systems aren't working. And I understand, I mean, within, within, within the American context, I think there's some people think, you know, these institutions are failing or these institutions are threatened. So maybe we need good people in them in order to, uh, uh, you know, to preserve them. But I also think if you're really, really smart, you need to be investing in the new world and not trying to preserve the old one. I mean, of course, I'm not saying the old one should not be preserved, but, you know, we need some kind of balance over here, you know? So, something... uh, so it's actually... Sorry, go for it. I mean, it just feels that it's conservative and not progressive. What really is progressive is investing your energies into building a new world rather than investing your energy in holding together a world which is already crumbling. So that's joining legacy institutions that you mean? Exactly, yeah. So something kind of connected to that, um, which um, one of the things that I've found very frustrating when it's not done and I find inspiring when it is, um, and something that we've been trying to keep in our minds is centering our own people, um, kind of connected to decolonizing, um, resisting Eurocentricism or America centricism mostly in our in our current world. But the the way even we do activism tends to center the U.S. and Western governments, and you know to to an extent that people are confused and shocked when they ask us about policy. Like, I remember someone asked you about policy and you basically once and you said, like, I don't care. It's not my job to make your policy for you. I've told you why it doesn't work. Now you go fix it. Uh, I mean, it, it goes beyond that because I don't, I actually don't think that there is a political, there, the political will exist to even implement the policy. You're asking me for pie in the sky. You're saying, what policy should I implement? Do you, do you think I believe that this policy is actually going to be implemented? I don't. I don't think that the, the, that the you know, that, that the, the political will even exists. Uh, and so I feel like it's it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my energy to, th to be thinking about this. And again, my job is not to fix Western foreign policy. My job is to center my people. Uh, again, I mean, they're the ones who are being targeted. I'm not saying that nobody should be working on this. You know, again, I'm not just like I'm saying, I don't I don't mean that nobody should be trying to preserve certain institutions which are valuable. I'm saying that a lot of our energy should go into something else. Not 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 everybody should go. And I, certainly I don't. My team, I, I, my, I, don't, I don't want my team to be involved in that. Uh, I also realize that there's some kind of selection bias. Uh, uh, many activists get into the field because they've been targeted in ways that create a short-term short-term goals. Uh, 
so for example, you could have someone whose family is in prison, uh, family members are in prison, or you know, there's you know, it, it's th their activism becomes focused on on this target. I need my family member, my you know, I want my father not to die in prison. Uh, I want my brother to be out of prison. I want to know what happened to you know to my mother. Uh, this creates a short-term bias in the movement on certain... Uh, of course, I'm not saying that these people don't care about the movement. They do care beyond that. But what I'm saying is that th there is kind of... There is a, a sense that progress means that we have to, we have to hit these goals. Uh, so it, so it, it cripples your ability to think strategically uh, long-term or generally because you have specific goals. Yeah, so we uh, so said this, this is a selection bias, means... bias because the field disproportionately attracts people who have been targeted directly and therefore have a short-term need. But at the same time, we recognize that there's that it would be uncompassionate to expect these people to think in a different way when they have such a, an extreme need. So we're thinking about how to diversify the field rather than how to somehow fight that or undo that. But, but I, I'll, I'll push back a little bit because I actually think that in the new world, uh, we will be actually less likely to succeed uh, in specific goals because uh, the new world sees less leverage. It sees us having less leverage with start because we're shifting from kind of a unipolar world into a multipolar world, uh, into a world in which non-Western powers, many of them authoritarian, uh, the other discussion, why so, but a lot of them authoritarian, they, they, you simply don't have influence with them. I mean, I see, for example, so many, uh, you know, uh, Iranian opposition uh, accounts, and they also frustrate me a lot because a lot of them, they're on and on and on about how why should America allow this to happen? Like, there's there was one today about you know free the hostages, etc. I'm like, you think do you think America even has the 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 leverage with Iran to free any hostages? Do you think that if it had the leverage, it's, it wanted to actually apply the leverage? It's not a matter of simply that they, they can't, sorry, that they don't want to. It's that they can't, they, even if they want to do, they can't. So we have less leverage on, on certain, on certain, uh, achieving certain goals. And so we have to zoom out. So our strategy has to change because in that case, it becomes, it's not really a matter of freeing in, the, in this particular individual, but rather, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe a political, a political settlement or political movement where we, we free like a hundred prisoners in a certain certain kind of arrangement, certain exchange with the regime, even though we know the regime is terrible and you know long term we have to you know we have to continue to be fighting it. But I think that you know we have to be we have to be willing to to think about what we cannot do, even though it's painful. It's very painful to 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 think that you know there are certain things that we can't do and there are certain people we can't help. There are specific people we cannot help. But I think it's important for us to be honest in our inquiry to say that, you know what, uh, uh, this is terrible, but also in this, you know, the, the tools that could have allowed us to achieve this don't exist anymore. They don't work anymore. And so we don't, we, we don't have an ability to do this anymore. Of course, you mentioned, of course, this is also, uh, the selection bias also means that a lot of community members are likely to be traumatized and trauma itself uh, creates a short-term bias. Yeah. So, what else is there? Other effects within this? Um, so, see, I mean, zoom to zoom out. For a long time, I feel like a lot of activism was complaining and whining to an indifferent world. 
uh, trying to humanize ourselves to, to, to this world in the hope that it'll act. And I think that so many people are still stuck there, especially those who work within the context of the US and the UK, because the US and the UK had an outsized influence on, on, on a lot of institutions. Uh, a lot of human rights work is becoming invalid and a lot of people aren't even aware of it. It's sort of like a frog getting boiled slowly. I felt this when I met a, a bunch of people who I hadn't met since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, you know, if you remember before the Omicron wave, there was a bit of optimism about things opening up and, st and, and stuff. And, you know, uh, we were thinking, you know, that now we're, we're able to travel, we're able to meet people. And I did, I did travel a bit and I did meet, a, meet, a, meet some people, including people here in Norway. Uh, and I felt like, you know, my consciousness of my work has shifted so much between 2019 and now and there was this frustration because i felt like so many people are where, where they are and i'm like don't you see that everything has changed and what you're saying doesn't work anymore yeah um the frog being boiled and water does make sense there because if you haven't actually been taking a look at the big picture if you're if you zoomed in on a single issue it just seems like stuff's getting worse but you don't realize that you know it's not the, the tree moved it's the, the tectonic plate moved exactly uh, a glacier. Uh, I mean, the Western-dominated world order was contradictory, and there's two ways to look at it. Either we look at it as hypocritical and cynical that they knew that it was contradictory and they still they still acted like it isn't, or something that you mentioned before, we see it as inept. Uh, that it's not so much that uh, I think we, we we had this conversation before. This is not so much that. It was built to be hypocritical. I think at some level it was, uh, but also there's also a bit of ineptitude there, like there an inability to see, uh, an inability to have you know uh, uh, a global uh, a global view on things. It's not just a matter like like even now when we're talking about the pandemic, for example, and how we're going to be to be hit by one variant after the other because the vaccination rates across the world, because a lot of governments basically are trying to, to fight the pandemic as if it's a national problem, but it's a global problem. The same thing happens with, uh, with climate change. You know, like we're going to have more catastrophes, more climate catastrophes, because it's, again, a global problem and we're dealing with it at the level of the national government. It doesn't work. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the fact is, uh, this is also hobbled by the fact that this is a multipolar world. And a lot of the countries that have to come together to fix this are not even friends. Uh, they might be really terrible regimes, such as, you know, the Russian regime, the Chinese regime, etc. cetera. Uh, but somehow we have to be able to develop institutions and develop ways to work on global problems. So a lot of this, when I look at it, I'm like, okay, at some level, it is cruel that a lot of Western countries are, have achieved like 80%, sometimes 90% vaccination rates and they're giving the third shot. I just got my third shot, shot here in Norway. While the vaccination rates in you know in poor countries are abysmally low, some people most most uh, most people in poor countries haven't even gotten their first shot, and then we're going to have another variant and another variant and another variant because we're dealing with this as you know as a national problem. Uh, and you know at some level I feel this anger and I feel okay this is hypocritical and this is cruel, but at the other level I'm thinking maybe it's actually inept maybe it's actually that we we lack the tools we don't even know how to how to how to do things globally how to how to act globally and that there's nobody who's actually incentivized to act in that way so i'm a big fan of hanlon's razor which you just mentioned which is never a tribute to malice what can be adequately explained by 
incompetence. I think that's generally a great principle to have through life. Um, but we basically have, um, if you really think about it, a global political order in which um, there isn't really anybody who's incentivized to think about the well-being of everyone. And there isn't really anybody who's incentivized to think about the well-being of people on the very long time scale. Like the the people who we empower are politicians who are thinking about the next election. Like if you have a really forward-thinking politician, he's maybe thinking about the election after that. Why would you expect that person to be, you know, making radical plans on climate change, which may potentially be painful in the short term? Their entire incentive structure is to minimize pain in the short term. Interestingly, the 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 the, the global institution or the global organization that actually managed to uh, to act globally are, are actually corporations. If you think about it, that's something to look into. Also, there's a whole thing happening right now about um, ESG uh, criteria, environmental, social, and governance um, being like criteria for investing um, in the big funds, um, which is pushing a lot of corporations towards like being more environmentally friendly and things like that. And I've even seen CEOs and managers making this kind of convoluted logic that, okay, we know that we're in sense because they're working within a system. They can't change the system. So they're trying to work within it. So they're saying, yeah, our legal, um, what do you call it? Our legal mandate is basically to maximize returns for our shareholders, but we can't maximize returns for our shareholders if we destroy the planet. Um, because the maximum return for our shareholders is if it's going forever. Therefore, we have to do something. That's a, that's the thing because I think I think you 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 found it here because if you are an investor, you're looking for you're looking for a return on investment, uh, and you're willing to wait. Uh, you know, if you are a patient investor, you might be looking for you know a return in five to ten years, and you want continuing return after that. Uh, meanwhile, if you're a politician, you know you have an election in two years. Uh, and so that kind of creates a, a short-term bias there. Kind of ironic that we've basically concluded the opposite of everyone else, that you can probably get better governance out of uh, corporations than politicians. I mean, of course, there's the, the, this is a, it's, it's a provocative idea that we still have to look into because I don't think corporations are going to, to save the world. Uh, I think that in many ways they're part of the problem, but I think there's certain, there's, there's certain truths at the middle of this that maybe we have to dive into and, and, and figure out. Well, maybe, uh, it's not that to... you, maybe it's not that you get, get the best governance out of corporations. It's that even with the most benevolent politicians, even, you know, the greenest part of the left, you're dropping them into a context in which they have to think about the next election or they won't be in, in position. And therefore, so you've limited exactly. what they so can do. So it looks like this is not really about how, how well corporations work, but how bad co politics works. Uh, but it also could be that corporations have a very simple motivation. They're, they're out to make money. Uh, you know, meanwhile, politicians have much, uh, much more quantitative, sorry, much more qualitative, uh, you know, at least self-declared uh, uh, goals. And that can be, you know, that can, that can create more confusion. I guess also corporations are dealing with uh, a more educated average constituent. Whereas politics over the last few decades has been more and more a race to the bottom and the lowest common denominator. Like, it doesn't matter how good your policies are if you can't ultimately control the media, uh, you have the floor wiped with you. I mean, zo zooming out a little bit, uh, talking about the Western-dominated world order, I think that 
I'm talking about this, the historical context of the, why why did we get the West, a Western dominated world order? This is part of this work. Uh, but regardless, the, or, the regardless the, the order is going away. Uh, these countries, Western countries, are no longer able to dictate order. They can't. They don't want to. They're mired in their own shit and their own dysfunction, and they're stuck in old ways of thinking. Uh, I've actually been thinking that you know part of this maybe what I can do is dig up my own threads on the topic. You know, like figure out certain words like reform or world order institutions, etc. Maybe that can be part of the uh, uh, part of the query over here. Yeah. So one of the things that stood out. To me from that folk politics piece and which i think connects a lot to our media strategy the reason we're doing this in the first place is um that one of the reasons people run to the immediate and neglect the systematic is because there's so much complexity in the modern world and complexity is difficult and scary um and probably one of the most impactful things we can do is help people through that complexity like we have the luxury to be able to take the 10,000 foot view and look at the world in a systematic way and we should be trying hard to pass that on to the people who can't spend that much time on it. Yeah, but keep keep in mind that many political leaders today are actually deepening the ignorance here. I was uh I was like in the morning when I'm when I'm like cooking to have my meal, I normally like watch either I listen to a podcast or you know uh, a documentary or something, but sometimes also I watch uh, you know news. And I, about a week ago, a little bit more than a week, uh, uh, Blinken, the U.S. State Secretary, he was like talking about, you know, the whole crisis with, with Russia. And he said something like, we can't go back to a world of, sphere of spheres of influence. That was a recipe that led to conflict and world wars. But the fact is that we are going back to it. I mean, get with the program. I mean, it's, it's, you can, because, he, you know, uh, you can't dictate order anymore. But I think I think I mean I mean of course I was uh, I was ranting uh, I I wrote some notes about this I was ranting but then I realized that you know what let's focus here we will not be able to campaign for specific tactical outcomes uh, we will not be able to to you know go for no, narrow short term specific objectives as 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 uh, as much as before uh, so I feel I feel like there are levels to this because I I feel like legal challenges are still useful. Legal challenges, uh, you know, strategic litigation, et cetera, because uh, they depend upon the legal system. And the legal system is almost, I mean, it's at least in Western countries, which continue to be important to the world. I mean, I'm, we're not saying that they are going to be insignificant. We're just saying that there's going to be like a, a global evening out. Uh, the legal sector is normally independent. Uh, so you don't have to go and rec and convince a parliament or a government that you know what this guy's a torturer and he should be, uh, you know, he should be convicted. Sometimes you have to pass some laws, for example, universal universal jurisdiction laws, etc. But in the end, I think legal challenges will continue to be to be important. Uh, next level becomes single single country advocacy, which of course requires you to convince a government or concern convince a parliament, uh, you know, do advocacy work. But then, you know, this works within that context of that country. You can maybe change policy in a single country. And then, you know, if it works out, you can roll it into, into more countries. But again, how far can one country do? That's the thing. You can, you can work on local issues, certain local issues, but you can't, work, you can't fix the entire world from there. Uh, 
and even then, the, that country, that parliament, etc., has to be both willing and able. Uh, and increasingly, it's neither willing nor able. The third level would be, you know, I'm trying to achieve something on a multi multi country front. You know, like we're like kind of like the world democracies or the Western world or the liberal world. Or I don't think it will happen for a generation, if ever. There is some uh, success on that on that front. Like the you could see the Magnitsky. Uh, sanctions as a limited success on that front because he managed to get it very widely applied in a few years. Yeah, but sanctions as a whole are going to be... That's the thing. Sanctions yeah, so as that's, a whole, that's another important point, that sanctions are a failing paradigm. Uh, they're a failing paradigm, except in very specific uh, uh, specific cases. In other words, you have to, you have to be kind of uh, forensic about this. You have to think, okay, who am I trying to target and what can I take from, the, from this person that is valuable? Uh, the Magnitsky sanctions, as you remember, if you remember, worked specifically. They started against Russians with a very specific context, which is that Russian elites like to spend their time in Europe. Uh, but then, if you, you try to like try to use that, for example, in China, the Chinese don't like to spend their time in Europe, uh, and so it's less, it's simply less uh, effective against them. And then you know they have a big internal economy. Uh, it's not going to it's it's going to work in some cases, but not in others, and also. You sanctioned them, but also there's a whole like other monetary system uh, being developed uh, on the side, which is you know cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, etc. Which is again they can you can you can sanction them in one in one area, but still that's not going to take all of away all of all of their wealth or, or their ability to continue to do business. We mentioned corporations, and I feel like power is actually shifting towards large corporations who run the internet. This is another area which I think is is also important. Um, Influence, having influence with large corporations that run the internet, and having them, uh, some having some kind of re, you know re, uh, relationship of dependency where they depend on you for certain things, is becoming more important than government advocacy. It also means that we should we should have to invest in our own tech, run our own tech companies. The internet is a place to build power. We should build our own platforms. We should you know with monetization community. And it also means that our narratives, if we want to, to unlock the full power of the internet, our narratives have to go, go beyond identitarian boundaries if we are to win. So that's another area, basically. Uh, the internet uh, and specifically the, the corporations that run the internet, because we are, we're not at Web3 yet. We still have a, a centralized, what do you say, an internet with centralized power. Well, if you believe in Web3 at all, because that whole area is uh, very fraught i don't think it's going to i think it's a good idea i don't think we're there yet and i think it will happen but i don't think it's going to happen overnight uh one other reason why advocacy i mean i'm just changing topics here one other reason why advocacy is failing has to do with the very fact that the world order is changing so states are having to prioritize see this is the thing states before could could talk about values and they talk about, you know, uh, we have to uphold these values, etc. But now, because the world order is changing, it is creating anxiety, geopolitical anxiety across the world. And this is forcing many countries to, to prioritize their geopolitical interests and to switch to pragmatism and real politics rather than, uh, you know, uh, talking about values and institutions, etc. I mean, you so could even flip though, that on its head because we started this conversation by talking about the way, like this alternative narrative of how slavery was eradicated, which was it became no longer economically profitable with the Industrial Revolution. And when it was no longer necessary, then the tide turned against it. In the same way, you could arguably say here that talking about values 
um, was an easy thing to do when actually being pro certain values was also um, at the same time could further your imperial ambitions because your the soft U- power. Yeah, the U.S. could talk a big game about liberalism and freedom if that meant bringing countries into um, like out of this bipolar world of uh, the Iron Curtain and under the U.S.'s umbrella, part of the empire. Um, now that's no longer the case, and trying to stand up for values is seen as um, squandering power rather than gaining it because you're I mean, fighting very powerful adversaries. I mean, regardless how many times, for example, Biden and, you know, the world's uh, centrist liberals, uh, you know, speak about how we have to preserve values and institutions, we just have to acknowledge that the geopolitical landscape is changing. And maybe we should, you know, mention a little bit about how it's changing uh, for context. Uh, but, you know, not, not, I mean, not, not on this conversation, but, you know, uh, maybe in our eventual paper somewhere. Uh, but I think maybe we should just acknowledge, yeah, I mean, things are changing. People are like, uh, countries are becoming more anxious. And because they're anxious, uh, it's understandable that they're going to prioritize geopolitical interests because they are anxious. We have to, like, there is a return of geopolitics. For a while, I think that we, we took geopolitics for granted. Uh, so there's a return of geopolitics. Uh, I also think that boycotts are going to continue to, as a tool, boycotts are going to continue to be important, especially if we use them to build community and network and hire volunteers uh, and build kind of stable long-term co- coalitions. So it's not just a, the, the the boycott movement. Basically as a tool for organizing. Exactly. So it's not really about uh, recruiting in order to to act, but acting in order to recruit. It's a way for us to build coalitions and to activate people, etc. And it's also a way to activate and build uh, influencer networks, uh, you know, because a lot of boycott campaigns kind of depend or, uh, uh, you know, really need kind of like uh, big influencers on social media, etc. To, to take up the cause. So I think boycotts are still going to be con- to be an important part of the, uh, uh, what do you say, of the toolkit. But then we will be doing this understanding that it is, unlikely that the boycott is going to actually i mean the the way that we measure success has to kind of change because instead of talking about you know um uh we have to we have to stop this horrible thing from happening in the world ever again to you know this boycott managed to achieve some results and raise some awareness but also it built an amazing uh, coalition and activated so many volunteers who can be part of the movement it's you know we have to look at this holistically sanctions on the other hand like I mentioned, they're going to be less effective. We talked about this, uh, mainly because the West runs less of the world economy, but there's also alternative monetary networks, etc. So a lot of uh, so something that's standing out to me here, um, and it's a common thread through all of the different methods um, that we're mentioning, is basically having a theory of change and understanding the causality behind the methods and strategies that you advocate, as opposed to doing things because it's the way they've been done before. Um, like the way things have been done before is to advocate to um, governments and international entities. It's to uh, push for legislation and sanctions, etc. Um, but if you look at those things from a first principles lens today, you see that A, they have a low likelihood of succeeding because of all the factors stacked against them, like um, the geopolitical interest of states. And B, even if they do succeed, they aren't very effective. Uh, keep in mind also that here we're talking about uh, all of this is talking to people who aspire for power. 
uh, we're not talking about people who are already in, who are already powerful. If you're already powerful, there's no need for you to use other to use our methods or to change your methods. You're going to be invested in using your your power in the traditional way that has always worked and kept your system in the first place. So the battle shifts from trying to wrest control of the system from them, who already run the system, to trying to build an alternative system because uh, the existing one is crashing anyway. Uh, so we're trying to, to find alternative ways to fight, and we're trying to kind of topple the system that they already use because it's you know it's uh, it's crashing anyway. I mean I, I don't I don't know if we have to like actively undermine it or it's going to basically it's undermining itself. So essentially, this piece of work when we're talking about activism paradigms is not relevant for people who are already powerful because we, these are the guys we're fighting, and and there is reason reason to believe that. Uh, they're not going to they're not going to be investing in the same thing that we're investing in because it is it's a far shorter journey for them to simply double down on what on what's working what's been working for them. Maybe there's a bit of a uh, bit of optimism there. Uh, the other day I was uh, again I was like browsing and this there's this guy who's an Emirati advocate and he's talking about you know the UN should pressure the country into releasing a prisoner. The UN cannot pressure anybody. The UN itself is a playground for dictators. Whether or not one country can be pressured to release a prisoner depends upon, uh, you know, a few things. How dangerous is releasing this prisoner for the regime? Uh, what will his life post-prison be like? Is he going to be to cause more trouble for the regime? What precedent will it set? How serious is the pressure or pain upon the regime? You know, like, like is it really leverage, suffering? basically. Yeah, how, what leverage do you have? Exactly. So this is what where we have to focus. I mean, when we're talking about releasing prisoners, this is what we have to focus. We cannot just write a petition for the UN. What are they going to do? But even, like, that takes a special kind of uh, either naivety or delusion to think that, A, the UN even has an interest in pressuring to release prisoners because there's no evidence that they've ever cared, um, and B, that they have the ability to do that even if they wanted to. What are they going to do, invade you? I mean, this is this is what uh, what what kind of tells me that campaigning for individual prisoners based upon quote unquote human rights will not work. But we will have to use something else there. We, there's, there's much we we need a much bigger and broader coalition in order to create enough pressure with the potential for serious escalation, uh, reputational damage, targeted media campaigns, boycotts, legal measures, targeted sanctions, uh, elevating the reputation of the imprisoned. Uh, you know, uh, like looking at recent cases, like Lujain case. Lujain case, I think, is Lujain Hadul case was exceptional because, first of all, she was very well connected, uh, and also the siblings coordinated with others. It was a coalition effort, uh, and even then, it had limited success because you know Lujain is kind of kind of under house arrest in a way. Uh, the perfect campaign is is one that will not only hurt the regime but also offer it something valuable that it can say, okay, this is a way out for us. Uh, and we let them go so long we, we you know so long we do this so you know we have to think in a much different way much more strategic way i mean i i, I threw out an idea in my database i'm like okay let's say that the people released are going to live in a neutral country for a period of five years where they will not engage in engage in political activity you know for us it'll be like a healing period they're going to undergo therapy and healing etc and this will be guaranteed by a certain country so they, they're kind of like saying okay they're out of prison but at least there's there's like a there's an arrangement for the kind of sunshine clause that says that they're not going to give us tr trouble for the next five to ten years, uh, five years let's say. And during this period, we're, the hope is that there's going to be some kind of political settlement, you know. So it has to be more transactional than based upon human rights, unfortunately.
just an idea. Yeah, all of this is basically arguing for seeing things through a totally new paradigm, which I don't think a lot of people are ready for. But again, you have to focus on the edge cases where you do find a convergence of people who are ready to think that way and try something very different. Uh, I also noticed that some people, because they're aware of things that things are not working anymore, this is creating a, a kind of backlash. I, I saw a series of, of tweets recently about people who are dissing raising awareness. They're like, raising awareness doesn't work. I understand people are frustrated because the things, are, things that used to work aren't working. But it doesn't mean that we should throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, basically or be short-sighted. It's not that raising awareness doesn't work. It's not that it stopped working. It's that the world is more complex, so the chain of causality needs to be fully explored. Raising awareness doesn't work if you think that making a video about something will fix it. Again, it's, that- it's, it's part of having a theory of change and an actual strategy and a theory of causality because raising awareness, okay, and once there's awareness, then what? And sadly, too many people's thinking actually stops there. They haven't gone beyond that. What happens when there's awareness? It's not all or all, all or none. It's not like I mean, because a lot of people's like you know, you're exci- why are you excited about this? It's not going to fix everything. But it's not all or all or all or none. It's kind of we have to understand what is the connection, what is the relationship between narratives and power, and because it's not it's it's not direct. But you know, taking it back to activism. Um, uh, this is, uh, as the case with everything else in our toolbox, uh, the reason why it's become so problematic to have specific targets is because the tools of pressure themselves are less targeted. They're becoming, you're becoming more strategic. And so, you know, we have to, we have to, like, I don't know, we have to think about it. And underlying all of this is a sense of prioritization because as a community of human rights activists, we have a very limited amount of effort um, and limited, you know, political capital. And we have to spend that in ways that expands the political capital and achieves results. Um, you have to spend it well, basically, and you can't spend your energy yeah, so have, raising awareness without an idea of what comes next. Exactly, which which goes back to your point about having a theory of power. Like, what we, what are we doing here? Um, I'm I'm also kind of annoyed. I think that's recently. the that's the thing, really. At, at like right at the bottom of it is like sometimes when I'm scrolling through social media and I see stuff, I think guys, what are we doing here? Like, what next? Well, why are we doing this? And what do we do after this? Is there something after this? Or are we just going to be doing this forever until we die? Yeah, I mean, recently, there's there's a lot of excitement, for example, in Germany about uh, a sentence for an Assad, uh, a torturer, basically, a colonel who used to work for Assad. Uh, and I completely understand that people want to see accountability and closure. Uh, and, and, you know, this is something, this is a sweet moment for them, of course. But at the same time, let's face it, it's not going to fix Syria. And it won't even fix accountability. It will bring comfort to some people, but it won't stop the crime of torture in Syria by Assad or anywhere by, by anyone. So on that, uh, I, I disagree a little because I think if you're looking on a very grand timescale, what it actually does, it's not about Syria at all. What it actually does is go towards entrenching the principle of universal jurisdiction a little bit more, uh, maybe towards a future someday in which it's like it's very natural that these people would be tried anywhere the moment they step foot out of the country that they did the crime in. Because that would yeah, be I mean, a great thing for human rights. No, but I do agree with you. Basically, what this means is that it is not about this specific case. Again, it means that we, can, we, we have to think systemically and we have to think generally rather than specifically. Because in the end, this means if we have enough of these cases, 
maybe it will mean that if you are a torturer right now, you know that eventually you're going to be caught, even in 10 years, in 20 years, you're not, you're not going get, to get off the hook. You know, it's going to catch up with you sooner or later. And it means that you're going to have a very limited life because otherwise you'll have to kind of live in your, you have to, you have to hope that your, uh, that your dictator never dies. Uh, and you have to hope, you have to kind of stick to your town because if you go outside, if you cross up, if you, if you, if you travel, etc., you're going to be caught. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, even it that's, seems that even the, that's optimistic. I think it's really for um, a future generation in which there will be that kind of accountability. I guess, I guess. The huge elephant of the room is that the world order is changing and the rules-based machinery that can or claimed to protect human rights is gone. All of our human rights activism is happening in a world where the fundamentals of human rights activism are changing. And instead of querying these fundamentals and coming up with new ones, we're just doing the same things that doesn't work and wondering why it's not working. Uh, one more thing that I wanted to mention, which is important for our work, because this is something that we're deeply invested in, which is criticizing dictators without offering a vision, which there's a lot of this all over the internet. Even if everyone agrees with you that this rape ruler is incompetent and shitty, it won't automatically make you a competent visionary. You have to demonstrate vision and competence and ability to bring people together. Yeah, but I don't necessarily think it's harmful to normalize that. I think it's good to normalize, you know, the entire citizenry of a country having outright contempt for their ruler, even if they can do nothing about it. Well, yeah, but we've been doing this for, for a long time. I mean, this is part, part of, again, this is general work, but as, and people are going to do it anyway. But I think it's very critical that we understand that it's not enough. We have to offer an alternative vision somehow. Uh, we have to, to demonstrate, uh, you know, competence somehow Yeah. Uh, in very specific ways. I also kind of are getting really annoyed. You mentioned this, like how, how US-centric a lot of activism is. And this kind of made sense to me in during the Trump years because the stakes were very high. And I thought there was a reason why we had to be kind of uh, America-focused because we need like uh, Trump was a, was a threat to everybody. But now that Trump is gone, Americans are becoming increasingly shrill and annoying with their constant bickering and petty partisanship and shit that nobody cares about except for them. Uh, it's not only that the U.S. is more polarized than ever, it's that the U.S. is no longer the center of the world. You know, remember that, that interview about the, the Bitcoin, into the, what's it, was, it, was it the crypto interview? Like the guy who uh, was oh, yeah. by America. Doc yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this in, in, in a Tarbush episode uh, uh, soon. But the idea is that they're no longer the center of the world. So what happens there is less important and more irritating. We used to care because we had to. Now we don't care because we don't have to. This is a symptom of U.S. decline. Do you remember me telling you a couple of years ago that I actually really resent the the space this takes up in your attention? That mm. um, like I don't care about U.S. politics. I don't want to care. I don't like. I for a while I went through like purging my timeline because it's not useful to me or to the world that U.S. politics is on the brain of everyone. To be honest, we have to query this again because there are certain parts in America which are important for the global zeitgeist. Silicon Valley, computer game industry, Hollywood, right? Uh, tech industry, etc. But not really the politics. That's why I'm saying like in five to ten years, it is more important for us to have a close and, uh, you know, uh, and, and strong engagement with uh, the, those organizations that run the internet than it is with the government. Well, even better is to become one of those organizations which runs the internet. Exactly. And the best exactly. way of doing that of is to join, like, join free software movements and help decentralize it. That's exactly true. Um, 
if I want to kind of wrap this up and tell you from our list of projects what I what I see, uh, we have to work on a large scale. Large scale economics is what our Islamic economics project. Large scale politics is what Arab Spring Manifesto and radicalization. Large scale history is what the decolonial book, uh, decolonial history of the world. Large scale meta politics is what it's the it's uh, looking at disinformation and also the the manifestos, the the vision projects. Large scale activism is what it's this conversation. Large scale debates. I don't know what that looks like. What else? I mean, we have to keep keep building this list. Yeah. Well, we well we have large I'm, I'm scale sure. large scale trauma recovery and healing. Uh, yeah, social basically social social healing. That's uh, Shifa. Uh, I don't know where uh, you know. Basically, I think our our blockchain and Bitcoin work comes also under large scale economics. It also comes under. Uh, sustainability and uh, self-dependence.